I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. Welcome to episode 70, Obey or Be Destroyed. So we um, we did something kind of crazy during this uh, lockdown. We got a dog this weekend, uh, but he only obeys commands in Spanish. He is Espanol. Nice. I like that one. Uh, welcome, everyone, to episode 70. If you know us and you got super excited by that, we did not get a dog. That was just for the sake of the joke. Uh, but welcome to this episode. We're talking about the virtue of obedience, which is going to be fun. But before that, let us uh, talk about our peak pit and plug. Uh, so peak, my peak of these past couple weeks Um Oddly enough, I did an Instagram takeover for our youth ministry social media, and I had a lot of fun kind of sharing how we've been staying sane and staying disciplined and focused during this quarantine. So that was really fun. Um, that's at ST Tim's Youth Ministry on Instagram. I think it's on one of the highlights or will be if you're interested in taking a look at that. But um, yeah, I had a, a fun time doing that. But my pit was that the next day, I was so like, oh, oh my gosh, I got to share this. I got to share this. I got to share this. And I kept finding myself like having that inclination and stopping myself. And if you know me, I'm really terrible at social media. I'm not really that active on it. Um, you know, it's miraculous that our podcast social media gets anything on there. Um, but you should go check it out because we post weekly blogs on the Psalm. So you should do that. But that's at Man of Food for Thought on Instagram. But anyway, um, I'm typically pretty bad at it. And so, and because of the fact we don't share pictures of Hannah, our daughter online, um, you know, we, we, uh, like to re- keep her, her, uh, face and her, you know, um, image private. Um, <clears throat> there's not a whole lot that I think of, you know, putting on there. So anyways, it was a cool experience, but it kind of res- made me sad for that, like obsessive nature that I see people have towards social media. And I I just witnessed how easy it is to fall into that trap. And it wasn't anything that like, I had maybe like a negative view of myself because of it, like, oh, I need to share this because other people, you know, a pride thing. It was more of just like, because I had started doing that habitually, even just for a day, it was just like soaking into the way I was looking at my life. It was kind of crazy. And other pits, I've been having really intense dreams. I think maybe just a little bit of anxious anticipation for baby number two to arrive and some weird headaches during the day. So if you could just pray for me for healing, that would be super awesome. I don't know what's going on with that. I hope it's nothing crazy. I don't think it is, but um, yeah, I think they're just migraines and I'm not used to getting migraines. So um, yeah, any advice is appreciated on how to deal with that. And then my plug, I'm on a C.S. Lewis kick as of late. And so I just finished reading The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. So if you really like philosophy and theology and you want to explore the idea of human suffering and how that fits into our idea of God, highly recommend The Problem of Pain. And then I very quickly read uh, The Great Divorce. It's a very easy and very awesome read. It's a sci-fi 
approach to uh, Heaven and Hell, and uh, such a good book by C.S. Lewis. So um, I restarted reading the Screw Tape Letters today, and I'm super excited for that. So anyways, that is my plug. Get some reading in. C.S. Lewis is a great place to start. So we're talking about today, episode 70, the virtue, and you may not see it as a virtue, but the virtue of obedience. Now, I think this word has like produces a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths because we very much like our autonomy, our independence, both inside the church and outside of the church. And yet without obedience, we are rejecting the authority from the apostles and from Christ himself that he instituted to guide our church. And outside of the church, we are rejecting the civil authorities that God has allowed to be in power and continues to work through even in ways that we do not understand or expect. So again, don't misunderstand that. Don't um, interpret that as saying like, oh, God wanted these specific people in authority. No, but God allows them to be in authority. And because God allows everything to exist, you know, existence is do our reverence and respect. And so society and the way society is and the way that other people are doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand up to change things that are bad, but we should always lead with reverence and respect for the other and recognizing we may not understand the whole picture of what is going on. And that is why we submit and obey God because God does see the whole picture. He does know everything that's going on. And remember, as we read in scripture, he's already won. He's already victorious over everything. And so I've seen a lot of things on social media and um, had conversations with my wife about a lot of things she's seen and we've experienced just about this idea of obedience, you know, obedience to God in a time like this, obedience of churches to their bishops or churches to their state um, and individuals to the state, uh, both religious and non-religious individuals. And a lot of people struggling with that right now because of this idea that they have that someone is out to get them or their religious liberty is being threatened or whatever it may be. Um, Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't happening, but I'm saying I'm noticing a big vacuum where obedience should be in a lot of behavior and things that are being shared. And I don't profess to be perfect at this. In fact, I've had many struggles with obedience. I consider myself a um, probably a pretty big rebel when it comes to authority. I do not like being told what to do, especially if I don't know, the, know or understand the reason why. And uh, I don't like blanket authority where someone is just given authority and that's the way it is and there's no questioning it. You cannot, you know, speak against it. You cannot let your voice be heard. You cannot ask questions or confront that authority for things that might be going wrong or might need to be corrected. Um, And so I tend to question everything. I tend to rebel against um, abused authority, especially, um, but authority that is being used in an inappropriate way. But I also get irritated when people are rebelling against authority that is good because it is necessary and they don't understand the damage that they're doing, especially see that within the church. And so I want to say as a caveat to all of this, I'm not saying that we should not be heard or be able to ask questions, but that we should, as a virtue, be able to put ourselves in a position of humility and be obedient. In fact, that word obedience Uh, It has a lot of different definitions and possible roots, but it can mean to hear or to listen to someone. It can mean to submit to them uh, or even to worship them. In fact, Obed, um, who shares a kind of a root potentially with the word obedience, is a uh, character in the Old Testament. And if you know your Old Testament genealogy really well, Obed is the son of Ruth and Boaz. 
and he is the grandfather of King David. So he's the father of Jesse, the grandfather of King David. Uh, and his name, Obed, literally means worshiper or servant. And so it's kind of cool. King David is the grandson of obedience or the grandson of uh, worship or service, which is kind of awesome. But um, so when we're, when we're meant to be obedient, it is not just like laying down and taking it. You know, it's not just like, um, you know, taking this punishment or taking this um, <clears throat> oppressive rule that we do not understand. That's not what I mean by obedience. The virtue of obedience is recognizing there is a God and we are not him. And so there is nothing better, nothing more humble, nothing more purposeful and joyful that we can do in life than submit ourselves to that love. In fact, in, in reading The Great Divorce, I highly recommend, it's a very quick and easy read, um, but um, C.S. Lewis, um, I don't know if it's him who professes to be the main character in this, but he's speaking in the first person and he um, experiences this place that he um finds out to be heaven and and he gets there from this gray place that you could conceive as either hell or purgatory depending on your decision to stay there or not um and they take this bus to heaven and all of these ghosts or these kind of people from the gray place encounter these spirits from heaven and have these conversations and these spirits are trying to get them come to the mountain come to the place where um where where god dwells where the sun is about to rise and so many of them have attachments they have attachments to uh, the way that they uh, uh, got attention and accolades and why they deserve to be there or the spirit shouldn't be talking to them in the way that they are or, you know, all these ideas and preconceived notions or things they're attached to that they can't let go of. And so obedience is a virtue that addresses all of that and submits everything to God's authority and recognizes like human authority is not perfect, but God established a church with authority that he divinely guides and that his divine authority is imbued within. And so we have to be acknowledging that and willing to entertain that idea and submit to that authority because that's what God asked us to do, but also recognize how he asked us to obey towards civil authorities. So when you look in the catechism, if you look in the back, there's a great glossary in the the catechism, at least in this um, green second edition that I have. And under obedience, it gives four different areas of obedience that are talked about, at least in this document and for us as the faithful. And so the first and most important is our submission to the authority of God. So that through that, we are all asked as Christians to obey what is called divine law, which means the, um, the, that which has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And with that comes obedience to the church, you know, that all of that means that we recognize um, there are certain things required for our salvation and obe- obedience is due to God, but it is also due to legitimate civil authority. And that has its origin in God because it is for the sake of the common good. In fact, it says in the catechism that all humans need authority over them, that we need to be um, living in such a way where there is a structure for our guidance and for the common good to always be sought after. And so we need authority over us. It is part of the way that God uh, instituted um, just creation and how we are a society. And so, um, and then we have things like the authority, um, that exists in the fourth commandment, which obliges children to obey their parents. But if you read that section in the catechism, 
Um, I highly recommend that you read the sections, if you're interested in this topic, the sections of the Catechism that deal with the Fourth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment. The Fourth Commandment is all about obedience, not only to our parents, but to civil authorities, all parental or uh, legal authorities that are placed over us, inside and outside of the church. And then the Seventh Commandment is all about the common good and recognizing, uh, there's other things there, it's it's the commandment you shall not um, steal. Um, and so I think this is where it is, but like stealing from other people in ways that we don't recognize that we are not uh, being attentive to the common good. So a lot of times we, th we think of stealing as like, I took something that you had, but in reality, the way that we live maybe carelessly or in a disobedient way, we are robbing others of, of the common good that they deserve by being so focused on ourselves. So that all is kind of encapsulated in authority, the authority of God. Uh, and so, and then the catechism in the glossary breaks that down into other different categories, like talking about the obedience of faith, um, that we listen and submit to the word of God, that we don't cherry pick what Jesus said, that we don't seek to interpret it for our own benefit and read into the faith or to the scriptures what we want it to say, but we are willing to submit to what God is asking of us as people of faith, that we, um, obedient, we are obedient to Christ and recognize that our sin is an act of disobedience against God. And so the only way that we can be justified and be brought back into right relationship is if we submit ourselves to the gift of Jesus on the cross, to the salvation that he offers us, that we cannot earn on our own, but that he gives us as free gift. And then it talks about, lastly, as a vow of obedience that some people, in imitation of Jesus and the obedience that is due of all of us to him, um, some people take this as an evangelical counsel, which is one of the three vows that are taken by priests and religious of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Diocesan priests take more a vow of simplicity rather than poverty. Um, and then um, other orders sometimes have a fourth vow, depending on what the charism of their order is. Um, but a public vow of obedience is something um, that the church authority asks and um, requires of anyone submitting to that religious life because, um, like when you look at the role of a bishop in a diocese, the bishop is the minister of the Eucharist in his entire diocese, and he is in charge of the preaching of the word in his entire diocese. And so every priest can only exercise that sacrament with the permission of the bishop and with the faculties that he has given. And this is why dioceses have trainings and different things that they try and do to vet people um, who serve in churches, especially those who teach or proclaim the word, because the bishop is the proper um, minister of the preaching of the word. And he entrusts that to other people because he can't be everywhere at once. But that still is his responsibility. And so, um, I don't know, all of this as we begin kind of talking about that from that angle just has brought to the surface all these kind of news stories I've seen. Um, first of all, people like um, churches wanting to open before the state says it's okay. Or single churches wanting to open without the permission of the bishop. Um, you know, that if, if a priest tries to celebrate the Eucharist without the permission of the bishop, the catechism says like it's not it's not valid. Like it's not legitimate. All legitimate celebrations of the Eucharist are done with the faculties given by the bishop and with his legitimate authority and permission. Like that 
boom, like bar none, like the bishop is the minister. So you can't just like go rogue, you know, like in the church, you can't go rogue. Um, but also thinking about like um, submitting those things, our obedience to the state, even as religious people. I can only speak from California's perspective. So I don't know if you're listening to this from elsewhere, because I know we have listeners from all over the world. But, you know, in California, <clears throat> our bishops have been working very closely with the governor's office. And they have said time and time again, and the things that I've read and heard from people who um, are in the know of these discussions are saying that the bishops do not think that this is at all a matter of religious freedom. Because the church is not saying you can't be Catholic. I mean, the state is not saying that you can't be Catholic. The state is not saying you can't live stream mass, practice your Catholic faith. That you They're simply saying, like, we cannot allow for the traditional experience of the sacraments because of the threat to public public health in the larger number of uh, people that would be gathered in the ability to um, to not uh, risk exposure um, of this virus and further spread without having enough information you know and so the bishops are working there and saying this is not a matter of, of um, freedom of religion for us uh, and for the church in California this is a matter of the common good. This is a matter of the common good. Now, you could argue that it would be better for the common good for people to go back to church. Well, then you're kind of narrowly focusing your common good on only people who go to church and kind of saying like, well, I only care about the good of those people. It's like, no, like you might be able to argue that for something like the stay at home order where everyone is being confined to their homes. And so people are more at risk for domestic violence, suicidal ideation, addiction, things like that. That might be an area where it could be argued that the common good might not be for everyone to be locked in their homes, depending on the rate of exposure. However, when it comes to church and just saying like, like, okay, if we can limit large gatherings and say we can do this for the common good of people, um, it doesn't mean that, like, just because you're a religious person and you're just like, I want to go back, you know, wah, wah, wah. like, that's kind of how it sounds, you know, it's just like, here's the thing, here's the thing, this is why this is really bothersome to me. <clears throat> I love the sacraments, I don't think they're unimportant at all, in fact, they are so important and so necessary, but we can live without them, at least temporarily. And we can experience salvation without them. Yes, baptism is tied to our salvation, but we have many forms of baptism in the theological, um, you know, speakings of the catechism, theological, you know, uh, understandings of baptism in the catechism and in our church. <clears throat> so you don't need to be traditionally sacramentally baptized with water in order to be saved. That is, however, the way that has been encouraged. And so we seek to do that. However, all that being said, what drives me crazy <laughs> is that People in church for so long, especially people who work for the church, have complained and complained and complained that people come to church only to check a box and to receive their sacraments and leave. They've complained about that for a long time. And we've been trying to find ways like how do we get people to know Jesus and have a relationship with him? It's almost like we were asking for a situation where the sacraments were completely removed so we would have free reign for people to maybe just only dive into their relationship with Jesus and explore their faith as a family and rekindle the domestic church. Does that sound familiar? Oh, wait, that's what's happening right now. And so as a minister, I'm kind of excited for the opportunities that come from this and how we can remind people like, yes, we need the sacraments, but the foundation 
that you enter the sacraments from is a relationship with Jesus. Like if you haven't heard that message of the good news being proclaimed, that charismatic message of the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and has risen from the dead for you, a message of hope for you to turn from the fruitless way of living that seeks for self-pleasure and self-edification and turn toward God who loves you more than anything and will be your ultimate fulfillment. If you don't know that message, then the sacrament is at best a meaningless ritual that you might get a little bit of grace from. But it might be completely unbeknownst to you. There is no meaning to it if you're not entering into it out of the context of this is a deepening and an encounter, a covenant relationship moment with my Savior who I'm in relationship with. If you don't understand that first and foremost, then the sacraments are not going to bear fruit in your life. They're not. You will receive the grace and the grace will come and it will knock on a closed door and it will stay outside because that door is not open. That door of understanding, that door of receptivity is shut and locked because we are box checkers. And so we've complained about that in the church for so long. And yet here now is a situation presented to us on a silver platter that says here, your people are now going to be reminded more than ever that they need hope, that they need prayer, that they need family, that they want to be connected. And your default will not be able to be, okay, let's get them the sacraments or just put them in a program because that is not even a possibility right now. So here's the perfect opportunity for you to anchor yourself into this thing that you have hoped for for so long to preach the gospel to people who need it, and to get them to see that Jesus matters not only in a sacramental moment, but in every moment. That is what makes me so crazy about this whole situation, is that we've in some way, shape, or form been asking for this type of scenario in the church, and now that it is here, what are we saying? We want the sacraments back. That's all we want. We want the sacraments back. And don't get me wrong. I'm saying we need those back. We need to have those sacramental encounters and experiences with Jesus. They're not unimportant. They're so important, vital to our faith. But when it comes to people who don't believe or who are struggling or sharing that message with people or helping families understand and individuals understand like this is about Jesus and a relationship with him, we have no better circumstance that I can think of in my lifetime so far that presents the opportunity for that to be proclaimed and to be received so easily. And yet we are just throwing our arms up in the air and abandoning it because of fear, anxiety, religious freedom. We want to get back together. We want to do this or that, you know, and, and I understand there's a lot of people who are really struggling and suffering and maybe can't have access to those messages or, or whatever it may be. But I think as a whole, in a general way, like this is something that we can really take advantage, advantage of as a church. And we are failing at doing that. And so I think that's something that we need to be reminded of. And so all that being said, um, obedience can also be almost like a receptivity to the situation. Because anything that happens to us, we can recognize either God is actively causing this to happen or he is permitting it to happen. Those are the only ever the only two options. If anything happens to you, God is either causing it to happen or allowing it to happen so he can cause something greater later as a result of it. So, all that being said, our virtue of obedience is submitting to the fact that God is allowing something to happen through this that is going to either be good now or good later because of his actions. So how do I put myself in a humble position of receptivity to this and allow myself to recognize I may not have all the information, I don't know everything, um, I'm not an expert in these things, 
but how can I take advantage of the situation and make the most of it for myself, my family, and for others? How can I serve? And how is God speaking to me in this time and place? That is what obedience is. It is submission to the will of God in this moment. But that also extends to civil authorities. And I, if you are on Facebook at all, especially if you are in ministry or you're a religious person, you've probably seen a lot of people sharing these crazy conspiracy theories about how the devil is in our government or these, you know, order 666 in California to make everybody, you know, vaccinated or whatever, it, you know, like just these, these um, uh, inconsequential associations and creating this whole conspiracy about it. You know, the... <laughs> The thing about a conspiracy is people don't realize how how much pride is involved in them having to believe that a conspiracy is happening. First of all, that you you are in a sense saying, "Of course, this would happen to me." Of course, because the, we are the center of everything. So, of course, if things aren't going exactly our way, that means the government is out to get us and in league with the devil. That is what it sounds like, you know. Um, no matter what kind of fringe or like somewhat connected evidence you can muster, when you look at it rationally. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't play out. And that being said, even if, here's the big sticking point, even if the devil had infiltrated everything, you know, every form of government on this planet and was trying to seek for us to get, I don't know, microchipped or whatever it is that you're worried about, even if that were true, Jesus is still victorious. Jesus is still king. He's still risen from the dead. He still wins in the end. And there is nothing bigger than him. Nothing that he cannot conquer, nothing that he cannot deal with to remove from your life, nothing that he cannot overcome. And nothing that you cannot overcome when you submit it to his omnipotence. That is something that so many Christians, I think, have forgotten in this time. That even if our worst fears were true, why have we suddenly forgotten that Jesus is still bigger? That is why his message, most frequent said phrase in all of scripture is be not afraid or do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not fear because we recognize he can calm any storm. He can raise any death into life. He can make anything and all things new. Have we forgotten that? Have we allowed our fear and our anxiety and our worry to just completely allow our vision to become so narrow that we're focused on what we can control, what we can worry about, what we can grasp, no matter how ridiculous it may be, or completely founded. It may be completely legitimate. And my response both times would be, who cares? Jesus is still victorious. And if we just let ourselves every day get right with the Lord, then we will have no fear because if that moment comes, we will meet him in glorious splendor and recognize how great he really is and how small we really made him in our lives and in our hearts. How often we put him in a box, how often we um, allowed him in our minds to be smaller than he really was, than he really is. And so all that being said, when it comes to civil authority, here's what the catechism says in paragraph 1900. The duty of obedience requires all to give due honor to authority and to treat those who are charged to exercise it with respect and insofar as it is deserved with gratitude and good will. We are asked as Christians to be obedient to civil authority, to pay our taxes, to follow the law, and to do so as long as it does not um, 
go against the common good or the message of the gospel. And so that um, is elaborated later in paragraph 2242. This is when we can refuse this obedience to civil authority. Um, the citizen is obliged in conscience, conscience not to follow the directives of civil authorities when they are contrary to the demands of the moral order, to the fundamental rights of persons, or to the teachings of the gospel. Refusing obedience to civil authorities when their demands are contrary to those of an upright conscience finds its justification in the distinction between serving God or serving the political community. And this is, they quote, where Jesus says, render what is uh, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God what is to God's. We must obey God rather than men. And it elaborates saying, when citizens are under the oppression of a public authority which oversteps its competence, they should still not refuse to give or to do what is objectively demanded of them by the common good. But it is legitimate for them to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens against the abuse of this authority within the limits of the natural law and the law of the gospel. So that's again, paragraphs 1900 and 2242 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So what is being said there? We are meant to be obedient to all civil authority and to um, treat those who are in civil authority with respect and gratitude and goodwill so far as it is deserved. When is it undeserved? When that authority is being abused and exercised in such a way that it is contrary to the moral law, the natural order, and to the law of the gospel. Now, however, when that is happening, we should still not refuse to give or to do what is objectively demanded us by the common good. And this is where, that's the kind of key linchpin phrase for me, that you could, I mean, whether or not public civil authorities in our country, in our state, are legitimate, uh, according to the the moral order, that's kind of so much area for interpretation there. Because you could pick any one issue and say, well, this person supports abortion, and so they're contrary to the moral order. And if you go back and listen to our, our uh, podcast that we did on voting a few episodes ago, you have to recognize when you approach issues in the political sphere, you have to look completely as a whole at the common good. If you pinpoint one issue to make your decision upon, then you are neglecting the entire common good. Now, everything else might be a wash or a neutral, and then in that case, then you can look at that one particular issue. But most often, you have to look at a candidate or a um, an office or a state government, a federal government as a whole and say, how as a whole is the common good being affected? Is it being advanced or being reversed? And so, Everything about this response to the virus, in my estimation, has been with the common good in mind. Now, yes, are there people who maybe have corrupt intentions, people who are in it for money, people who are trying to do unsavory things in the background? Sure, probably. We're all human. We're all fallen. We're all sinners. However, that does not mean that we can completely abandon what we are objectively demanded to do, as it says in paragraph 2242, for the common good. And so if the common good, according to our bishops in the state of California, says that this is an issue of common good, and that means that we may have to be away from mass for a little while. Uh, in fact, well, we got the message today. Um, today is Saturday, May 23rd. I'm recording this a week before it'll come out. We got the message yesterday, actually, but I think the press release went out today that um, masses will be allowed to continue um, starting June 13th and 14th, Corpus Christi weekend in Orange County, the Diocese of Orange. And so um, that is great, but 
we have to remember just because they're allowed to happen doesn't mean they necessarily have to happen immediately because safeguards need to be in place in order for that to happen. So that's the first weekend things can happen if churches have implemented the proper protocols and are following the orders that are required in order for mass to happen in a safe and healthy way. So don't, I'm going to say this, don't expect every single church to be open. And we need to expect when they are open that they are doing everything that is being asked of them by the diocese and by the state to protect the common good for people who are gathering. And there are a lot of different requirements, asking everyone to wear a face mask, asking everyone to receive communion in the same way and in the same form. Uh, to uh, make sure that there is one entrance and one exit, that they are socially distanced when they sit, that they're willing to go to a daily mass instead of a weekend mass to spread out their attendance. All those different things are, I encourage you to go find the press release and read it um, if you're in Orange County or wherever you know you are when this happens or if it has happened to recognize that this doesn't mean it's like a open the doors, everything's back or we can do what we want. No, we need to be aware of our responsibility to the common good always even if we think that the authority that we are under state or federal is completely demonic we still need to be responsible for our ability to advance the common good Uh, we can uh, express our ideas of incompetence to that government It is legitimate for us to defend our own rights for those of their fellow citizens against the abuse of this authority. So the question would be, when when is it time for us to um, disobey civil authorities or federal authorities? The question needs to be asked, which one of your fundamental rights is being oppressed or being removed or taken away? And when it comes to free exercise of religion, none of that was taken away. You are still free to exercise your faith as it applies to the matters of public health that needed to be instituted in order to curb this virus. Um, You know, a lot of people make a big deal that this wasn't as, you know, a big virus or whatever. That's because we did a whole lot and projections made it seem a whole lot worse than the flu and a whole lot worse than a lot of other things. It had that capability from the people who are experts. I'm not an expert and I don't profess to be one. And I don't think anyone who isn't one should either. Um, But to trust that maybe they know what they're talking about. And, uh, you know, to say that uh, we overreacted is to kind of say like, yeah, more people should have died before we made a big deal about this. And that is not a very Christian thing to say. It's not a very pro-life thing to say. So anyways, all that being said, I know I'm getting a little into this viral situation right now, but this is about obedience, recognizing that the people who are being put in different levels of authority are people who deserve our respect, who we should submit to as long as they are not infringing upon our fundamental rights or asking us, forcing us to go against natural law, the moral order, or the law of the gospel. And none of that, in my opinion, was happening. We, I was not forced to do anything immoral. I was not forced to do anything unnatural. I was not forced to deny the gospel or prevent my exercise of living my life in such a way in accordance with the gospel. I was just asked to refrain from receiving sacraments in a large gathering for a matter of public health. But I could still experience sacramental moments Um, via live stream. Those things were still allowed to happen in churches by priests. It's not like the state said, you are no longer allowed to celebrate mass anywhere in California, regardless of who was there. That would have been an oppression of religious freedom. But this was a matter of public health for the common good. And so when we look at this, we have to recognize like we're being asked to be obedient and that might be difficult. But the sin of disobedience, it can lead to pride. And that was what happened with Adam and Eve. You know, in in, ep- in episode in episode three, Genesis chapter three, um, Adam and Eve, they profess to be the experts. 
They thought they had the most information, right? They thought like, oh, I think I know better. Even though the Lord said, if you, sh- if you eat of this, you will surely die. Uh, we allowed ourselves, they allowed ourselves, themselves, Adam and Eve, to be persuaded to disobey. That was the first sin. It was a sin of disobedience, of no longer being willing to submit ourselves to the goodwill of God's authority, but to act as if my authority trumps it. My authority is better. My authority is greater and higher. We're not experts. And even if you are an expert, you're still just one person. So when it comes to this pandemic, recognize this is being fought by and researched by teams of epidemiologists, political scientists, economists, researchers from all over the world. And if you believe this is a conspiracy, I would lovingly challenge you to consider your own pride. Like how self-focused do we have to be to believe that anytime there's a trial, someone is obviously out to get us. Part of it is fear. It's a, just a desire to get more information, to be in control, like I said. But above all, it prevents us from being obedient and submitting to God and seeing the fruitfulness he can bring out of even a difficult situation. And it shows our privilege in a sense that we're not used to being in uncomfortable situations. We're used to living a kind of a comfy, easy life. And this is not that difficult of an ask. And so that's something I want to offer to you. You know, this word obedience, it's not popular. It's not popular. And it's kind of synonym. Submission is very much not popular. But when we read about it in a Christian context, why wouldn't we want to do it? So I want to leave you with this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. I encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, oh shoot, I don't have my Bible in front of me. That would be helpful. Um, but in Ephesians chapter 5, we have this um, explication of wives and husbands being the image of obedience um, and sacrifice when it comes to the relationship between Christ and and the church. And it's a really beautiful uh, image that's given here, but a lot of people read this and they see it as very negative. So let's read it in its proper context. So Ephesians 5 verse 21, be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that first verse, be subordinate or be obedient to one another out of reverence for Christ, recognizing that God is willing us all into existence. He's allowing or causing everything to happen right now. And so when we submit to that, And we allow ourselves to be humble and just accept and receive instead of trying to control and demand, then we can really experience God. And then he uses this image of husbands and wives to paint this picture. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. We don't like that. For the husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, he himself the savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Now, those verses, if you're female, I, I, I would be remiss or um, naive to think that those didn't strike you in some kind of negative way because we hear those words as negative. But oftentimes we stop reading there. Let us continue and see why that is a good thing that is being asked of us. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So also husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it even as Christ does the church, because we are members of 
his body. And so wives or women, if we are, if you're being asked to submit to your husbands, that means to submit, submission is under the mission. What is the mission of the husband? To love and serve you sacrificially. How is that a mission you would not want to be under? A mission you would not want to be obedient to. And that's the same mission that Christ has for us. Why would it be for a moment that any one of us would not want to submit to that mission of Jesus living or giving himself body, blood, soul, and divinity to us? Of course I want to be obedient to that because that's the only way that I get salvation. And so we cannot look at those words negatively and have all this negative connotation and use all this modern language of patriarchy and oppression and all these things from the past or from different perspectives to negate what real obedience and virtuous obedience looks like. It is not an oppressive acceptance of the way things are no matter what and you you don't have any freedom. Rather, it's a depth and the deepest expression of our freedom that we are giving our whole selves freely unrestrained to the one who gave himself to us freely, holy, and unrestrained. That is an obedience that I will do time and time again, this day and every day. At least I will strive to. And if that's a struggle for you, as it has been for me, because of my um, idea of authority and wanting to rebel and express myself, um, I'm with you. And there's an awesome saint that you and I can ask the intercession of. But I want to remind you, as I said before, Obedience does not mean that you can't ask questions. Obedience does not mean that you cannot investigate. Obedience does not mean that um, you have to lie down and take whatever happens and just accept it. No, but it recognizes that at some point, you're going to have to be satisfied with the way that things are, the way that God is allowing them to happen and permitting them to happen in your life. And instead of trying to control them or change them, maybe that we might need to accept them in such a way to see how God is allowing us to be changed through them. Now, I know it's a very messy and complicated place, and you've probably thought of a thousand different ways where my words might not be helpful or might not apply. And so if you know this isn't helpful, if you don't like it, if it seems not to jive with Christianity for you, please let me know, or please just feel free to reject everything that I said. I am not Jesus. Um, I do have a degree in theology, but I have been wrong many times before, and I will continue to be. But from what the Catechism says, what Scripture says, and what I've experienced in my own life and reading, this seems to be a beautiful gift in the virtue of obedience. And yeah, it's messy when it comes to God, and even messier when it comes to human civil authority. But real freedom comes in recognizing that we can offer ourselves to another, and to accept that offering that Jesus has uh, given us. And part of that is just accepting that everything that he gives us is gift. Every civil authority, every day, every moment, every good and bad thing that happens is gift because somewhere along the line, he will use it to bring about our good. And a saint that knew that and lived it really, really well is a saint named St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi. Not Mary Magdalene from scripture, but Mary Magdalene de Pazzi, or de Pazzi, I think is how you would pronounce it in Italian. Shout out to Isabel Nepomuceno, my dear friend, whose uh, confirmation saint, I believe, is this particular saint. Um, but St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi lived from April 2nd, 1566 to May 25th, 1606. Seven. So right in the midst of the Renaissance, at the end of the Renaissance, uh, she died at the age of 41. Her feast day is May 25th, the day of her death, as it often is with saints. She is the patron saint against bodily ills, against sexual temptation, against sickness uh, of sick people. Um, and so kind of a timely saint for our time as well. But uh, she was a member of one of the wealthiest families in Renaissance Florence. And there was a lot of wealth and corruption and crazy things going on at that time. Um, 
But at the age of nine, uh, so she was born to this wealthy family, um, Renaissance family in Florence. At the age of nine, she was taught how to meditate by the family chaplain. And so she started practicing uh, meditation and uh, started practicing mortification of the flesh. She would like beat herself uh, as a matter of self-flagellation. Now, I don't know what you feel about that. There, uh, I read something, I think, in reading uh, about her that kind of was like, oh, I kind of get it. You know, it's not like punishment um, for sins, but it's recognizing um, that like a, a desire to go beyond what um, the flesh offers us. Um, so it's not a punishment or a, a uh, an indignity to the body, but it is recognizing like our desire for more. So I'm not telling you go, you know, beat yourself or anything like that. But I think there was a way of understanding this that wasn't super morbid and self-destructive that, that we don't really understand in our modern time. And so just kind of, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, but the fact that she was doing that by age nine, pretty crazy, um, you know, um, yeah, anyways, she received her first communion at the then very early age of 10. That's pretty standard now, but it was not then. And she made a vow of virginity that year. Um, <clears throat> she uh, would experience ecstasies of God, uh, her first one when she was 12 years old, and it happened in her mom's presence. And so she continued to have that throughout her life, had a lot of mystical experiences. And then when she was a teenager, when she was 14, she was sent by her dad to be educated with nuns at a monastery. Um, but he called her back because he wanted her to get married to another nobleman. Um, but she advised her dad, um, that she'd taken this vow of virginity and he eventually let her go back, uh, to the monastery and enter the monastic life. So she entered a Carmelite monastery in Florence where she would be able to receive communion every day, which was not also very typical then. Um, and on January 30th, 1583, so she would have been, gosh, oh man math on the fly, uh, 16, I think years old. Um, is my math right? Yeah. 16. She was accepted as a novice. Um, and she took the name sister Mary Magdalene. Um, Deposi is her, um, her, uh, surname. So, um, <clears throat> she was a novice for a year and she started getting very ill. And, uh, once she received her habit and became a sister, um, sisters started to ask her, how could she bear all of this pain that she was in from her illness without even like a complaint? And she um, was reported to point to the crucifix, uh, and she said, Those who call to mind the sufferings of Christ, and who offer up their own to God through his passion, find their pains sweet and pleasant. I love that. That is something that is so indicative of how I was talking about obedience, that when we recognize all that Christ gave for us, and that everything is gift, when we offer up our little uncomfortabilities, our pain, our sufferings, in light of that great gift from Jesus, it, it all becomes sweet at all. We recognize the, the beauty of it all. Uh, when she was near death, her, her uh, superiors um, let her make a profession of her final religious vows in a private ceremony um, while she was lying on a cot in the chapel. And immediately after that, she was in ecstasy for two hours, and she re that repeated for 40 mornings every time she received communion. And so, um, so that people wouldn't be deceived and to kind of preserve her revelations. Uh, her confessor asked her to dictate what she was experiencing to her fellow sisters. And over the next six years, five volumes were filled as she was sick, as she was having these visions and things like that. Um, people believe that she could kind of read the thoughts of other people or predict future events. Um, and for instance, in one event, she predicted that um, Cardinal Alessandro de' Medici, one of the Medici families, would be elevated to Pope. And he did become Pope Leo XI. And so um, during her lifetime, she uh, 
also ha was reported to bilocate to uh, appear to several people in different places that were very distant and also was reported to have cured a number of sick people. But she eventually did die on May 25th, 1607, when she was 41, and she was buried uh, in the choir of the monastery's chapel. When she was canonized in 1668, so just about 50 years later, 60 years later, her body was declared miraculously incorrupt. They exhumed her body and she had not decayed. Uh, so her corpse isn't still located um, in, well, it's located now in the monastery of what's called Maria Maddalena de Pazzi in Careggi, Italy. Um, and something about, she just always, um, in what I read about her, always was willing to submit herself to others, even if they were inferior to her in age or title or stature or whatever it may be, or in the order of her sisters. If someone asked her to do something and just ordered it of her, it brought her joy to do it because she knew she was being obedient. And that if someone was asking that of her, in some way, God was asking that of her. Um, so when she was sick, she would often refuse food or costly medicine that was offered. But if they required her to do it as an act of obedience, she would not object anymore. And she would just say, blessed be God, and she would take it. Um, she had a huge affection and regard for obedience as a way to um, be safe against uh, doing your own will. Instead, um, rather wanting to be obedient to God's will. And the thought of acting uh out of obedience was sufficient enough to restore her peace or her serenity um, when she was going through any type of trial or suffering. Man, I wish I and more people were like that. Like, no matter what comes your way, if you see it as an act of obedience to God and just let that bring you peace, like, man, so much anxiety and worry. It's so much easier said than done, right? You, especially if you're struggling right now with anxiety or fear or disobedience or like, you know, confusion, you're probably like, man, this is a hard thing to receive. But I think that's why we need her intercession. I think she is going to be a powerhouse for you of prayer if you ask her to pray for you throughout this, this time. Uh, I'll leave you with these words that she said. A little drop of simple obedience is worth a million times more than a whole vase full of the choicest contemplations. That no matter how deep you get into prayer and you know, no matter how much you know about God and know God, until you are obedient and submit yourself to that God that you know to be love, mercy, and gift, then you cannot experience the peace and joy that he is offering you fully. And that is something we learned from her life, and I hope that you learned from this episode. So go forth and be obedient unless you are actually really being oppressed of your fundamental rights. But I think for the most part, those of us, especially the people, I, I won't go into it more. You kind of get what I'm, I'm saying, you know, and hopefully this convicts all of us in a good way to be more obedient to Jesus and more obedient to those in authority over us, even when we don't understand. And even if we think we know the right way to profess that we don't know everything and only God does. And so bring it to prayer, bring it to discernment and allow God to reveal to you what it is that you should do. Don't simply react or, um, you know, take action out of pride because um, that is the way to disobedience. That was the way of Adam and Eve, and that is the way to sin and struggle in our life. So that being said, if this episode was helpful to you, please share it with someone. The highest compliment that you can pay us is to share this episode with others, especially sharing it on social media. 
we're so appreciative of those of you who do that. Shout out to Justine, who's always always uh, repping us on social media, and Natalie. You guys are so supportive. We love you guys. Um, so uh, if you want to become a supporter of this podcast for as little as $1 a month, as many of the people I've mentioned are, uh, go to our website, manafoodforthought.com, and click on the Patreon tab. You can also see all of our blogs and our old vlogs there, and follow us on Instagram, at manafoodforthought, and all of our blogs are posted there, as well as um, little posts anytime we have a new episode. You also get to see um, what episodes are coming up and maybe even ask questions uh, to be answered on those particular episodes. So if you have anything you'd like us to do for a future episode, let us know. Uh, Email us, uh, message us on social media, whatever it may be, and know that we are praying for you during this time. And until next time, we will see you actually soon in person in the Eucharist. God bless you.